everybody, welcome back to The Followers. I'm going to actually take a stab in the dark here and say I think we're on episode 46. Bing, bing, and bing. I think I'm right by John's reaction. Yes, episode 46. Uh, we had Alan Dunton on today, so it was a really interesting chat. Uh, it's a long one, but it's a really, really good one. I found it really interesting. We mainly covered around the areas of skill acquisition. And yeah, what did you boys think? Uh, well, firstly, I'm both impressed uh, and um i suppose uh, excited by your uh, studying this week of how many episodes we've we've done so far you can say but, it's done it's done <laughs> stunned. I, i'm shocked but um yeah look, i i thought it was uh hugely insightful there there's um there it, he's taking part in some very very interesting research just in developing of skills what that actually looks like um and i, I suppose you know i really enjoyed our chat around including player feedback uh, as well as you know management directive together to try and develop um you know skills from a, 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 an invasion sport uh, perspective there how about you mark well uh, we didn't specifically bring up the topic of hurling walls and striking a ball off a wall i think if you listen closely for long enough you will be able to pick apart its relevance how useless how where it can be useful and where it may not be useful plus a load of other really, really good information around how skills are developed, but also how important it is to, to develop them towards a specific goal and where the task will be applied. Let's, uh, I suppose, yeah, let's jump on in. I think I know exactly where Shane is going to bring it towards the end anyway, Alan. Once you mentioned that you have a bit of an interest in golf, you're able to pull a little bit from the skills side, but also from the S&C side. I could just see Shane's eyes light up straight away, be like, oh, more golf stuff, brilliant. Um, I suppose, Alan, it would be great for uh, listeners today to just maybe get an idea of you. Uh, I suppose what uh, started you off on your uh, your path and uh, where you are at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose I was very much a multi-sport kid when I was younger. Um, competed and trained in a vast majority of sports. Um, and when I got to about... 10 or 11, uh, I had been doing uh, Taekwondo, which is a martial arts for uh, a good number of years since I was about four. So when I kind of got to 12, I got my black belt in that and there kind of started to be opportunities to start to move towards um, kind of international events and that. So I kind of focused on Taekwondo as a sport, kind of dropped away from GA, dropped away from soccer uh, and all the, the kind of other ones I was doing at the time. Um, and then as the years progressed from about 15 to 19, I competed for Ireland. Um, uh, it was awesome, got to go to places like New Zealand and Canada, Sweden and stuff like that. And as I was competing in martial arts, it's also very traditional for the people who are black belts or the more senior people in the club to coach as you go through it. So I was kind of exposed to coaching quite early from when I was younger, um, or at least what I thought at the time was coaching, I think now I would just call it instructing. Um, but at the time, it, it was kind of my first introduction to, to that line of coaching. So I would coach kids, I would coach um, kind of teenagers, and then I would take part in my own class after that. So when I kind of got to 19, I was no longer really good enough to compete at a, an international or, or national level for that matter. And I kind of veered away from uh, competing and I started my undergrad in CIT at about 18 in uh, sport and exercise. Uh, so I did four years in CIT um, and as I was kind of getting towards the end of my third year, I was lucky enough to be uh, 
to have Dr. Edward Collin as, as one of my lecturers. Um, and that kind of drastically steered the path of, of what I was kind of going to do kind of, and what I have done since then is that he kind of introduced these concepts of skill acquisition in, in his lectures. And it just kind of grabbed my attention quite drastically before that I was thinking of kind of being a physiologist or uh, a sports scientist. And I just got consumed by, by skill acquisition and how we learn and uh, particularly kind of the visual system. So I graduated from CIT in, and I went straight into what at the time was a master's, but it was a, a research master's. So I was looking at um, the impact of uh, occlusion goggles, which are a perceptual motor training tool, essentially. And they can kind of break that down into it's not just what you see, but what you perceive, if that makes sense. So two people may look at the same thing. But somebody who is uh, who has an educated attention to that thing might perceive something completely different to somebody else. So a really easy example of that is two two people looking at a team playing. Uh, somebody who's educated as a coach is going to see formation and tactics, whereas somebody who's never seen that sport before is just seeing people move. So that's kind of the difference between seeing and perceiving in that aspect. So I started my my masters and I had uh, Dr. Edward Collin and Dr. Keen O'Neill as my uh, supervisors. So over the course of about five years, I conducted three studies. The first one was in basketball. So the goggles essentially remove your lower grade visual field. So it means that you can't really see what's going on down below you. So if you're sitting on a laptop, you couldn't see the keys on a laptop. Um, so the purpose of that is if I'm dribbling a basketball, and I'm putting all my visual attention down to my hand and the basketball, I'm missing out on everything that's going on in the game. So we looked at like a really simple study to see if while I train with these goggles, when I come back to normal vision conditions, can I keep my head up but maintain or improve my dribble? So we looked at that in the biomechanics lab and we saw some some interesting results. One was that players were definitely able to maintain their gaze or their visual attention forward. Um, but to that, there was no significant impact on like a negative aspect of dribbling. So they were quite consistent. And depending on how you, you kind of viewed it, you could say they almost improved in their dribble. Um, so once we kind of finished that, the, the aspect of that that interests me most was, what can I do with the visual attention side of things? Um, and the there's kind of research on scanning in soccer, which looks at how people gain visual information in the environment around them or, or from the game. So you have players like Xavi, Frank Lampard, Paul Scholes, who will constantly be looking around and it's almost what people would describe as having their head on a swivel. So they're picking up information and they're almost not having to look at the ball when it's coming to them and it seems as though they're a step or two ahead. So. The first thing we did was uh, my second study where we got a, a massive projector on a wall that just spat out numbers every half a second. And every three, four or five seconds, an arrow would appear pointing left or right. So when that happened, the, um, the ball essentially would be shot out of a ball projecting machine. The person would have to control the ball and then pass it to a goal on the left or the right based on what was going on. So they're constantly calling numbers. So I'm able to see when you lose sight of the ball, can you maintain your visual attention up here and identify what's going on while still being able to control and pass the football? So I don't, I no longer have to watch a ball come all the way to my feet. 
I can keep my visual attention out here and I can spend more time picking up information in the actual hypothetical game. So because we started with numbers and, and arrows, that's quite a, a non-specific sense of information to somebody who's actually playing the game. So we moved from my second study, which was at uh, uh, our third study, which was we had uh, kind of three phases. You'd have one person pass a ball, so they kind of took over the role of the ball machine, and they'd run left or right. So the person had to control and pass the ball as fast as they could. So the ball would come in, it would hit a timing gate, so it would start a timer, and then as soon as they were able to identify the run of the person, they would pass it back. So we looked at one, could they pass it accurately to the person, and then two, how fast they did it. And then we added two layers to that where we had um, a distraction or a deception runner who ran in the opposite direction to the person who passed the ball, who we kind of would classify as a teammate. And then we added a third level where we had somebody run at you. So we've gone from like a quite a simple stimulus of just one person passing and moving to one person moving who's your teammate, an opponent running at you to put pressure on you, and then somebody running in the opposite direction. So can you control a ball that's being passed to you without looking at it per se and then identify where your teammates after moving in the environment so are you better at kind of scanning for the more important information in the system or in the in the game which is your teammate rather than putting all your focus on the ball um and the kind of key findings we found throughout both of those football studies that one people were able to spend more time looking outwards after they trained with the goggles uh, and two they were able to pass the ball significantly faster. Uh, and that kind of was, was quite a significant finding for us. It, it kind of takes away from the fact that you don't have to watch the ball as it comes to, to your feet, that you're able to attend to what's going on out in the environment. Um, and it kind of, that's, that's where the, the PhD kind of finished, um, which was a relief for me, to be honest. Five years is a long time. Um, but the, the key findings was that we were able to identify that if I guide your visual attention, I, one, I'm not going to have a negative impact on your passing performance, but two, I'm going to help you potentially pick up better information, which is going to then allow you to make better decisions when you're in a game situation. What you did in Gaelic football, had you seen stuff like that previously done in basketball and you adapted it across, or were you quite early in your first basketball study in looking at that? Yeah, so I was quite early in my first basketball study. Nobody had so the traditional research in in this kind of area is very much focused on a video display. Um, so if I had it, it kind of primarily worked off tennis and handball and uh, maybe cricket batsman as well. So watching a video, can I identify where a tennis serve is going to, or can I identify where a, a handball serve is going to, or a squash serve? The biggest issue with that is that there's a significant disconnect between somebody who's able to perceive something uh, versus somebody who's actually able to then act on it. So my research brought the action element in, which kind of is what we would refer to as a perception action cycle, where you're not only able to identify it, like you would say, oh, I can know that the serve is going down the line or I know the serve is going out wide versus I'm actually able to respond and get that serve back. So that's where my research kind of went. Um, and i sorry, I should have clarified. I said football. I realise where we are. Football is, um, I should have said soccer, but I'm not used to calling it soccer, I suppose. So just a point of clarification on that one. No, no, no that's perfect. That's perfect. Just on the, the percep- perception and action stuff there, 
like I remember I think it was Bounce I read it in and I know there are flaws in that book obviously but they looked at players perceiving the ball and when like a baseball was thrown at whatever speed they were able to perceive it and you know their reaction was to hit the ball but when they painted the the red treads white they weren't able to perceive it in the same way because I'm assuming largely on like subconscious or that's probably the wrong term to the batter themselves they were picking up on the patterns of how the red little lines moved and stuff and when that was gone that they couldn't track with their eyes anymore it wasn't a case of simply reacting to the ball they just weren't able to read the the pattern of its movement afterwards anymore is that where like it's very much perception and you swing and that's it you're not really thinking of where i'm hitting to whereas when you go to basketball soccer tennis even you're perceiving where the ball is going to but you also then have to layer on top of that what i do with it now that it's here because i'm trying to put it in a specific place at the opposite end of the court to a player on my team away from a player on the opposition whatever like that yeah absolutely so i i think if i were to give you the kind of underpinnings of that it's a it's a concept known as the two visual system so we have two distinct visual systems um within our, our brain it's a dorsal system and a ventral system so our ventral system kind of picks up i'm able to identify okay that's a bottle i know that's a bottle but my dorsal system will guide me to be able to go and pick up that bottle so people who have like severe brain injuries may have like visual ataxia or visual uh, dystopia they have issues saying okay i know there's something there but i can't identify what that is or i know that that's a bottle but i can't actually grasp it so that's how they kind of came across the idea that there's two distinct visual streams the important part of that and to come back to the example you gave which was a really good one there's a number of things that feed in to to that and to go with baseball you have the kinematic information from the person who's uh from the the pitcher so how they throw the ball so their hip rotation their shoulder rotation their hand and then you have the actual ball so predictive control strategies would be me saying I know based on how that person is throwing or in Gaelic football I know based on how he's kicked that that this ball is coming in faster it's coming in slow uh, and then the perspective control side of things is online control so as the ball starts to come towards me I'm picking up information from ball flight when they remove the red from the ball flight it had a significant impact on somebody's able ability to read say a a pitch that goes low to high or goes high to low or the terms I'm not great on for baseball but that general concept the stitching has a significant impact on that and when you remove that it's a problem now pitchers have got quite intelligent in baseball where they're able to uh, do this thing called tunneling where every one of their deliveries starts on the same trajectory and then it splits super late so it makes it even harder for the uh, the person who's swinging the bat to actually make contact with that um, so if I were to translate that to tennis or Gaelic football, and Gaelic football is probably a better example for, for people who are going to be listening to this, is probably a penalty. So in hurling or camogie or in football, the information somebody shows you when they're running up to take that penalty is going to be your predictive information. So how they plant their foot, uh, the potentially how they run up to it, if they're very obvious, uh, and then the perspective control is that online okay the ball has started to leave it's either going high or low 
Uh, and then I think it even gets more complex when you look at it from a camogie or a hurling perspective where it's a lot easier to create deceptive actions because it's a lot easier to manipulate manipulate a slitter. I think you'd probably find similar situations in, in hurling if you remove the lines from a slitter. You may see issues with goalkeepers picking up that information when they go to save a penalty. It's something I often wonder about with goalkeepers. How much of it is spent actually reacting to the ball and how much of it is... And often they may not even realise it's what they're doing themselves how much is just looking at the body position of the kicker at the time and you know you'd see some oh he, he guessed really quickly or he reacted so quickly were they actually reacting to before the ball was kicked and the body position beforehand as opposed to where the ball was going to yeah so it's actually both if you do it properly if um and i think it's it's based on the speed of the actual kick like in, in baseball it's impossible to actually move after somebody has or before somebody has sorry it's impossible to move after somebody has thrown the pitch because the ball travels too fast to the plate. So if I wait until the ball is left to swing, the ball's going to pass me. I think a similar concept you could be uh, inferred from camogie or hurling because the slitter travels at such a, such a speed. If you wait for that information, you're probably going to be too late. But it's about combining what you see from the person's body but then also what you're seeing from early ball flight. Like in soccer penalties, you can ident- goalkeepers can identify to a, about 80% what direction a penalty kick is going based on the planted leg before they kick the ball. But they can't identify if it's going high or low until they actually start to get ball flight information. And how aware are goalkeepers of that? Like I assume maybe now with, with more people like yourself coming in and hopefully consulting with teams that are coaching goalkeepers to look for stuff like that. But how recently did that happen? I think it's it's been it's been literature for a while, but I think like anything, it takes a long time for the literature to actually get into the practical domain. Uh, you definitely see some goalkeepers in in Premier League and La Liga who are definitely working on this, but in GAA circles, I I don't know. I co- I couldn't say. I'm I'd be more than happy to chat to anybody who's who's working with with keepers but yeah it's there's there's a there's a lot of factors that build in um i think the fact that people kind of potentially put it down to guessing is just a is just a bad idea really if if you're at a high level there there's so many factors that you can take into account such as like one what we talked about about seeing the person's movements before and judging the early kind of flight information but also the goalkeeper's action capability so how strong they are how fast they're able to dive from the centre of the goal to the side of the goal also plays a significant um, amount into saving an actual penalty. If I am a really strong and explosive goalkeeper, I don't have to move as early. So I can wait a little bit longer and pick up a little bit more information. Whereas if I'm not as fast as getting as, as other goalkeepers are like getting to the side of the, the goal where the, the shot may potentially go, I'm going to have to move earlier. So I'm relying on less valid information and then you're far more prone to deceptive actions in that kind of aspect on the goalkeepers who may be quicker or slower is that and we're jumping ahead a little bit now what we plan to talk about is that a natural inbuilt constraint that a goalkeeper will have to become better at perceiving earlier in the pattern of a kick if they are naturally slower as opposed to a goalkeeper who moves a bit quicker they don't have that same constraint there so they're not forced to develop the same level of pattern recognition in a shorter space of time yeah like you could refer to it as an organismic constraint which is the the person's own physical capability so like height weight 
all those factors build into that um or else you could talk about talk to it as a concept of like action capabilities so how actionable you are or how good you are at that can have an impact on what you actually have to see right and just after throwing that out we might start touching just a bit on constraints in general then so I'm not going to attempt it. I'll just leave you off there. Just give us an idea of what constraints <laughs> yeah. are, the different types, and then maybe we'll start digging into how we can use them. And maybe what, what in a way, is probably out there already and we don't realise the purpose it's serving in our coaching. Yeah, I, I, one thing I will say before I kind of get into explaining them is, is constraints are definitely, you could definitely see constraints in the way people coach. That may be just because they came up with something that they haven't realised is a constraint. But people do apply constraints. I think the biggest issue with that is why you apply constraint is really important. So I'll I'll start by saying a constraint-led approach is essentially kind of like how you manipulate practice to help your athletes solve a problem, be that a movement problem or like a perceptual problem. Um, And it's kind of built off this triangle. So if you've ever seen a a presentation on a constraint-led approach or anything like that, there's a triangle where at the top you have task so you have task constraints which are typically specific to like the action in the game so the rules of the game are task constraints the pitch are task constraints those you can't really manipulate too much in an actual competitive environment Uh, you have environmental constraints which is like the second side of that triangle so the environment is like the wind the potential weather if you're under floodlights or if it's a sunny day um typically people say that you can't really manipulate those much but in ireland we get an awful lot of rain so there are things you can do say if it is raining or if there are high winds you can use those occasions where it is like that in training as your constraint Uh, a really important aspect of that is if i am a player who who really get gets a has a high kick when i'm trying to score points if i go for that big looping kind of shot if I've got high wind that's going to be chaotic so I could use the wind and apply a task constraint of I want you to get the ball over the bar but I want you to keep it as close to the bar as you possibly can so I could apply a task constraint that's going to have an impact on how somebody takes that shot so instead of a looping shot it's going to be a much more driven shot so that's how environmental constraints come into play on that an example I heard on that, now, it's a massive oversimplification, simplification, but I've heard a lot of teams in Donegal, because the weather is a bit more extreme up there, that they can't actually play as much of a kicking game in club train because it's so windy and the ball takes around. And that's why over a while they developed more of a short hand-passing game because the wind wasn't as likely to impact that. Um, and that's just, again, an oversimplification, but that would be an example of how the environment impacted um, a style of play. Yeah, no, I think that's part. I don't think that's an oversimplification. I think that that is the uh, just, just so much of as the environment an oversimplification. Tony Gall's yeah. actual style of play more so. Yeah, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think you can compare that really well to links golf. I mean, like anybody who plays golf, links golf, the environment is drastically different to any other one where the wind is chaotic and you're open to the elements much more than you would be in a course that's sheltered. So players who play in like golf have a much different trajectory in their shots and they manipulate the ball a lot different because if you go high and the wind catches the ball you have less control over that shot so the same comes from a GA perspective or, or from a Donegal perspective in, in that example I think I heard of a table tennis player one time who, who always you know the table tennis they move further and further back from the table as they're hitting and you know you'd see it when you get to the Olympics final or, you know they're five yards back nearly 
it was, I think it was a British player, I can't remember who, but he always stayed right at the table and said, oh, he, he was obviously born with much better reaction or perception than everyone else. And they actually went back then through his childhood and realised that where he learned to play was in a little small garage and the wall was right behind him. So he just couldn't move backwards. So that was the environment constraining him to be forced to develop quicker, or no, not quicker, sorry, better perception. Or I don't oh, know, I'm not sure what the yeah, correct no, term is no, here, but that's what forced him to yeah, and that is, uh, like, there are so many fantastic examples of that. There's fantastic examples of uh, world and Olympic level cricket batsmen who played with a golf ball and a stump. And when you are a kid and you're playing with a golf ball and a cricket stump, it's a lot harder to hit that than when you have a cricket bat and a cricket ball because you're you're constrained to such a smaller space. So that's that's a really good example of how you can actually start to build in some of these task constraints. If you have... Um, players who like uh, you could move to kids say as an example and you've kids who when they hand pass the ball just goes straight down towards the floor you just put something in front of them and say okay i want you to hand pass over the wall you're not giving them and this is kind of the important part of the constraints that approach i'm not giving them a ton of explicit information on i want you to put your hand here hold the ball like this and i want you to bring your elbow back this way and i want you i'm just going to say i'm going to put this wall in front of you i want you to hand pass over the wall and that wall could be above their head, it could be lower, it could be anything. But you're applying a task constraint because you want to ex- to encourage exploration. And I think that's kind of the, the, the key thing about constraints is why are you using constraints? So what is your goal for applying a constraints-led approach? And there's kind of a, a few things that you can use it for, but kind of the main thing are destabilizing patterns that are almost not optimal anymore. So if you've been playing a particular way and it's not effective in competition you can apply constraints to kind of destabilize that so you kind of go back to almost the process of starting the journey of learning that particular skill again you can look at encouraging exploration like in the example i gave where i want to see if you can try a number of different approaches to try and hand passing over a variety of walls and you can make a game with kids where there's multiple walls and they are in teams and they're hand passing over multiple walls and it's a possession game. So you can make it really fun in that aspect as well. You can then use it to like highlight information. So that's where the kind of perceptual side of thing comes in. Um, in my own sport in Taekwondo, if I want somebody to focus on cutting off a line and seeing something more from a perceptual kind of angle, I'll constrain where they can move in a ring so that they don't have the freedom to fully move around but they're constrained to this particular line because it's then showing them something different from their opponent that I want them to focus on. I'm not telling them I want you to cut off the line. I'm just saying you have to stay in this particular zone and I want you to figure that out. Um, something I've just realised now is actually a constraint. I use my own coaching, particularly with younger players. I'm largely hurling. That's my background. But when I'm getting them to learn how to raise the ball first, with the longer hurl, you know, it could be 26, 28 inches, they tend to stand up and kind of, poke at it from there but to encourage them to get down low into the crouched position and under the ball I get milk cartons you know your two litre milk carton little hand lot and just cut the bottom off that and it becomes a scoop so they have to get down really really low to scoop it up with hopefully their dominant hand because it's the one they'll naturally gravitate towards that teaches them that position and then they pick a bean bag a tennis ball whatever out of it and automatically assigns that what we would say the hurl hand and the ball hand but also the crouched position so that's an element of a um, constraint coming in there to develop that without overcomplicating instruction to five or six year olds absolutely yeah and again they probably have great fun with that and and that's kind of one of the key things is 
it also needs to encourage one like the the other thing i would i would build on so you have your your triangle of the task the environment and the organism or the person and then where it's developed is there's now this perception action cycle next to it that i spoke about a minute ago so if you're applying constraints are you allowing for perception and action to occur within that because the environment that you play in quite often dictates how you actually perform a task uh one of the easiest ways of of showing that is if you get somebody playing basketball to just shoot for hours uh in whatever sense that may be you're getting them to work on their jump shot or or shooting and you do it completely unopposed the trajectory of that shot is going to be significantly different to when you have an opponent come in and they've got their hands up nice and high because if i don't have anybody in front of me there's no need for me to shoot high none whatsoever so unless i bring in that perception action cycle to my constraints then i could be potentially training a movement pattern or a coordination pattern that isn't exactly representative of what it's going to be like in the game so that's why it's important to try and then encourage that element of representativeness and perception action in there and in terms of isolated practice (laughs) this is a massive question but does it have a place or is it something we should once you have i won't even say mastered but put together a model of the basic parts of a skill should you then look to put it into some kind of more contextually appropriate situation or situations or how much time should or could potentially be dedicated to more isolated work yeah i mean this this is a question i've got a lot and i used to start off by saying don't do isolated practice and i used to say it was the devil i still am not a fan to be perfectly honest i'm not gonna it's it would be very hard for me to change my mind and say oh actually you know what isolated practice and good is good but when you look at where we've been as a global fucking pandemic perspective it's been a case where people have had to practice in isolation and if you're going to to do isolated practice one it should be deliberate and two it should encourage as much variability as you can uh, because those are elements of isolated practice that can actually help because you're exploring but in terms of the amount of time I would spend on it in comparison to representative practice, it would be like less than 5% and then 95% over here. So to come back to the, the kind of the, the reason you asked, if you're looking at kids developing a fundamental kind of skill in isolation, they're still going to have to use the skill in a game. So why not just get them to do it in the game? Uh, and that's, that's kind of one, my first very simple answer to that. Uh, but two, the, you can see, like, uh, you can develop a skill in isolation, but that may not necessarily transfer because the skill itself is different to how it needs to be used. And it's a concept of, like, constant repetition of the same skill over and over again in isolation versus this concept of repetition without repetition, where I'm getting you to do, I'm getting you to solve the same problem in multiple ways if that makes sense so it, if i were to look at it like the, the typical thing you constantly see is kids lining up at cones and passing like over and back to develop that skill aspect and it's just really rep- represent it's really repetitive it's very decontextualized because there's no 
directional flow for them to go. They've got no teammates, they've got no opponents. I don't understand why there's such an emphasis put on that versus let's put them in a game, but let's make the task difficulty level much easier for them. So if I have a kid who really struggles picking the ball up, picking the slitter up from the floor, I'm potentially going to put that person in a situation where it's four on one, where they have all the time in the world to pick it up because you could introduce two slitters and you're keeping the two slitters away from the, from one person and a little girl who has that much time to work on it when she's going to have a little bit more pressure from somebody potentially running over to her is going to be much better than her just doing it on her own and it's also fun for them to be able to develop it because she now has a teammate she's got to try and pass that slitter to so you're getting a lot more reps of it in but it's a repetition each repetition is different um, just on another example of repetition without repetition one of the best examples come up with is playing a game of bulldog the task is get from this line to a line 20 meters away and it's that same task but every single time you're about to be tagged by the bulldog coming to get you you have to solve that in a slightly different way sidestep to your left sidestep to your right just sprint all out give a dummy in one direction it's the overall same task but you're not repeating your method of solving each time because if you look to solve it the same way every single time the person trying to catch it will just adapt like well he's going to sidestep off his left and i'll just like realize he's going to go there and the key thing about that is your decision to either run flat out or sidestep left or sidestep right is based on the person trying to catch you it's not that you decided before you're going to go this is what i'm going to do and you do because a lot of the times if that's what you do and you're not taking into account the opponent or in this case the kid trying to catch you it's not going to work because you can be very easily found out in that aspect. And just to tie it back to some of the terminology, that per, that's perception and action together. You're perceiving yeah. where the tiger is about to get you. Your action then is based off how you perceive that and you're changing direction and going, and going the opposite way or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, Damien, do you want to hop in there now with that in Gaelic football based? You, you definitely have a few questions based on your years of corner back going and sledging corner forwards and the different ways they've used to solve that problem. Um, not so sure if, uh, if I have too many questions. It's, um, it's just very interesting thinking about, um, I suppose, just the way we'd have uh, uh, maybe I'd have grown up and kind of still see, say things like basketball, uh, rugby, uh, Gaelic football, just the, uh, that you do still come across quite a lot of very, um, I suppose, sp- specific line up at a cone, pass the ball, um get from one cone to the other turn around go back and do it again and <clears throat> right you're, you're getting in reps you 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 see people like they're getting uh, a sweat on you lads uh, people feel like they're they're training but uh i suppose I, I know largely we've been speaking about you know underage development there but even at you know an adult level like how um i suppose in in your view how detrimental to overall kind of uh development is that kind of approach because it is still it is still very much uh part and parcel of a lot of uh i suppose uh, i suppose uh, team-based sports um so yeah just just from an adult perspective like uh, sometimes you might kind of come across uh coaches who maybe believe that maybe look uh if you're dealing with a team maybe who's uh an average age of um you know maybe 26 27 so you know they're they're not old but they're they're starting to to move that way like coaches are sometimes kind of slow to change things up that they're like look this is what we have we'll try to make them fitter try to make them better at doing things through these type of drills but it, it can be very 
just linear almost, I guess, in, in, in how they train. It, it, would, have you much insight into how, yeah, as I said, how, how detrimental that can be to performance and development? Yeah, I think it, doing linear drills and stuff like that, it may not necessarily regress you. It might not potentially make you worse, but, it, but what I'll then say is it depends on your expectation of what's going to happen in the game. So if you train in a linear fashion, that's unopposed and that's massively decontextualized. I can't understand why coaches then get frustrated at players who are put in a complex system in a game who then can't figure it out. I'm like, you're asking somebody to figure out something out in a game, yet you have not exposed them to any of it in the training session. So if, if, if I were to, to refer to it as detrimental, that's how I would refer to it as being detrimental. I mean, the best athletes are problem solvers. They're the ones who are able to adapt to the situation that gets brought to them in the game. And I think that's how training should be structured from that aspect is create problems for your players to solve. And if you constantly expose them to problems that they need to be solving, then they're going to get better at solving problems in the actual game. Um, and that, while we were talking about the kind of youth aspect of sport, that is even more so for, for the adult side of the game. I mean, if you come out against a team who tactically your players have not been exposed to it, and you get walked over because like we just couldn't figure it out. I don't blame the players for that. I blame the coaches if they haven't put them in that situation. It's very easy to say the players are at fault, and you can have people who say, "Oh, this player gets uh, always gets uh, found out in this situation." I'm like, "Okay, well, have you put them in that situation in training?" And you kind of get the what you mean. I was like, "Well, you identified that that's a problem for that player. One, have you told him? And two, have you put him in situations that are similar to that so he can try and figure it out in training?" And quite a lot of the time, you get like a, a a bizarre look of, well, what you mean? Like it's his fault, but I don't. I that's where I that's where I think it it's just a bit ridiculous. Like, it, it's it's as it's a it's about players and coaches, co-designing sessions together. Players can come to a coach and say, look, this is what I'd like to work on, and you say, okay, well, let's create a situation for this in your game. But it doesn't mean your whole session has to go to that person. I did a basketball session recently where I applied individual constraints to players based on things they wanted to focus on. So if a post player wanted to work on post moves within a three-on-three game, any time that player scored off a post move, it was an additional point for their team. So I applied an incentive for that player to develop ways to try and create post moves in that situation. Similarly, you could have a player who wants to get better at driving to the basket or a player who wants to get better from three points. So I'll say, okay, well, any time you score from inside the inside the arc, it's actually, it doesn't count. Your team gets no points. But if you score from outside the arc from a three, you get four points. So you're incentivizing or you're turning the volume up on what those players really want to work on. And you're just, and, and again, what's beautiful about that is you tell the other team, this is what this person is working on and see if the other team can then reorganize to figure that out. Where a lot of the times I think it, it's almost too, too, we're just going to play the game because we're using a, a games-based approach, but there's no real development within it. It's, it's not just playing a game, it's how you shape the game and how you perturb it to, to develop adult athletes in that aspect. Is the real key there having this specific focus that knowing your team, knowing your players, knowing what it is at the end you actually want to improve and then you design your constraints coming back from that as opposed to seeing a really good team saying, oh, I saw them use this constraint, I'll apply it to mine. Are you kind of, you know, are you losing the, the wood for the trees there a bit? 
Oh yeah, massively. I think I think you're you're dead right there, and it's uh, a quote I'm gonna borrow from my PhD supervisor Edward Collin, and that is power fades in the copy, and it, like if you're copying and pasting from other teams, this is what this team did. We're gonna do it. It makes no sense to me. Uh, I just can't comprehend that. I I the and I think this is kind of what one of the bigger issues I have with the the concept of these. This is the drills we're gonna do. I need a good drill for this. I'm going to borrow this drill from this team. It might haphazardly work the odd time, and it might have been what your team needed, but it, for me, that's that's a the copying and paste coaching is, is a really poor way of going about it. Cause there have been some good resources come out over the last few years for hurling Gaelic football around games-based approaches and games you can use. Generally, I found from using though, if I take one game and apply it straight into any team and work with it, it doesn't have the desired outcome because it's not specific enough to the one thing i'm looking to improve or the overall problem we're trying to solve but now that i have a clear idea of that and i can kind of just through years of coaching i can see the end thing i want to get to so now i can take one of those games say that would work really well if i slightly adapt this little aspect of it here that'll suit the players now well three three sessions in it will because they've started to figure out what's going on but i find that a much more useful approach but the real key there the real key there is being very clear on what your end outcome is as opposed to what's the constraint I'm going to use, you know, working backwards from it. Yeah, so the why the why you do so the why behind why you do something is super important. That's uh reminds you of our, our conversation with Colin Nally uh, uh, a while back where he just like he has a games based um uh, uh, coaching book out but he's very which clear featured just, in which uh, I may may or may not have featured in, but uh, it's uh, it, he was very clear in that, you know, it's it's not so that you can have the book and go, right, guys, we've got a book of drills here. It's so that you actually take in what the the drills are looking to achieve and start to think, how can I adapt this to what we're looking to improve upon? What can I take from this to kind of uh, to to actually uh, maybe work on areas where we happen to be to be weak and i, I but uh, in in addition to that <clears throat> i think you touched on a great point there <clears throat> of the i suppose the relationship between the management and the players and that it's not just a kind of a top-down approach of a management kind of saying this is what we're going to do this is what we're going to work on and that's it and the players i suppose just being you know told what to do do that and nothing else it, it there needs to be um you know i i, I feel anyway for for uh team development it, it needs to be a two-way street of the information coming back this may be where individuals are struggling and they get to say it or this is where we might be struggling as a team and that that's where you start to develop out your um your problem solving from there but i don't feel i don't feel like that's as common as i would like it to be uh i do feel it's still kind of that traditional you know when if a team is successful it's like their their management are great you know they just came up with the the the, the magic uh the magic bullet there to to get this and as if the players weren't on the field trying to you know uh, figure it out themselves too um yeah have you had any i suppose you know when you mentioned there you're working with a basketball team and putting those constraints in place i suppose how, how have you managed uh in your experience working with coaches maybe who might not want that feedback as much from players uh, or have you had anything like that yeah i've i've actually been incredibly lucky a lot of the the coaching teams i've been involved in there there is 
vast open conversations that that are going to hurt like people who typically would be like i'm gonna say something this might hurt you but i'm saying it because this needs to be said and i've been i'm able to i've been in management setups where i've been able to have that open and honest conversation of that's this isn't working we need to do something it's not because you want to hurt somebody's feelings it's because at the end of the day you want to get the boat to go there faster you know so i've been quite lucky with the the exposure um in terms of the management teams i've been in i understand that it's not that simple um and it's i think the the important thing i think you make a very good point it's important to have the players feeding back in but it like by me saying this it's it's very much co-design it's not free reign off go players do what you want that's not what that is it's very much management saying well we have a, a structure this is what we have this is how we would like to play and players saying, well, look, I, I'm struggling with this. Can we, can we start to focus on this area? Or can I hone in on this? Or I'm struggling with this aspect of it. And you can say, okay, well, what, what would you like to see from a session perspective in that? And they say, well, if I could focus on this, fine. And that'd be great. And then your management is going to feed that back into the training session. So that like, it's still, it's, it is a reciprocal relationship, but it, it doesn't mean that the hands just go up and say, oh, go, off you go, do what you want to do. Um, so yeah, that's that that's a very good point to be fair. Any insights or queries from the goalkeepers club? <laughs> that's myself, is it? <laughs> Standing strong for just me. No, it's really interesting again from like like I never play goalkeeper to a super high level or anything, but it's never something that would ever be discussed really, as kind of like preempting the shot. Like you as you said, if it comes to a penalty you're nearly like it might be different now, but it was like guess before he hits it kind of thing and like if if you got the wrong way you go the wrong way there's no real way to deal about it but it's it's nice to see kind of the signs is catching up now and you're you're nearly playing more of a probability game than just flat out guessing no i mean there there is like you look at what can feed into that um like there's there are particular things that feed information in you can also then look at the the kind of history of a player this player likes to go to this side so you can have uh this kind of concept where you look at it's called bayesian modeling where your information of what may potentially happen feeds in quite a lot and if you can't pick up enough information online in the situation you rely on your prior knowledge so it's that like uh, situational probability comes into play where the likelihood is this player has gone this side of the goal 80% of the time so I'm not saying right I'm just going to this side of the goal but I have that knowledge in the back of my head where I'm saying okay well if I don't see anything different from this player then this is what I may potentially rely on. But you have to be very careful in that you still want the player to be able to, the goalkeeper to be able to pick up what is actually in front of them and in that particular situation rather than just relying on the probability aspect afterwards. And again, you'd hate, I suppose, because the player, the other side of it, if it gets to a level where they're like, right, well, I know the goalkeeper is paying attention to this, this and this. So if I drop my shoulder to the left, usually I go left. I'll just go right this time if it's a big kind of game. Yeah, it's it's that concept of deceptive actions that is being researched now that's fascinating, is how you look at disguise and deception. I may disguise what way I want to go, and the goalkeeper may still guess right, but uh, or identify that that's the way they want to go. Um, so I may have disguised it well enough to be able to get the ball past them, but if I completely deceive them, just kind of like that panic example where the keeper dives because they think that the person is shooting to the right but instead it's just a nice simple roll or a dink into the goal um or even you look at 
Bruno Fernandes, who likes to jump into his penalties at times, and then other times he doesn't jump into his penalties, he's creating problems for goalkeepers because they are being presented with different information than they would have thought they would have been seeing before that. Uh, and that's where that kind of unorthodox approach can work really well at times. Um, but yeah. Do you think is that solely, that's solely a decision to kind of disguise it to the keeper what they're going to do? Because like, like, definitely doesn't make taking a penalty easier doing like a weird jump beforehand. It's purely just to throw off any preconceived notions the goalkeeper might have. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I think from from what I've seen from it, I don't know because I don't engage in conversation with Bruno Fernandez. <laughs> but um, it 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 is what you would kind of class as a deceptive action or a disguised action. Like a really simple example of that is a sidestep when you step the wrong way before you go the other way in rugby. So you deceptively step the wrong way and then you come back. But again, there's still cues that are going to give you, like postural cues that are going to give you enough information, uh, like the hips. So like anytime I'm working on that kind of one-to-one kind of invasion-based stuff, I'll always refer to Shakira with my players and tell them the hips don't lie. Follow the hips. <laughs> That's, yeah. So I was going to say, is there any... I suppose it will be kind of different for every player, but is there any nearly like set in stone parameters of a position? If a player gets in this position, he's physically can't go left or he can't go very much left from a penalty point of view. Yeah, I wouldn't call it parameters. I'd say there's, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't refer to it as a parameter, but I refer to it as a bandwidth. So, I mean, like based on the direction of the the hips, I mean, it's very difficult to load the hips to go right and then go left because your center of mass is now outside of your body in that direction. So it's very hard to go back that way. Um, but I mean, when you look at the, the bandwidth of that, you can identify within a particular bandwidth of how far their hips are going to the right, the likelihood is that they're going this way. In other kind of areas where they're running at you straight on and you don't have the that same closer interaction, you may have a much broader bandwidth where they have an opportunity to go in multiple different directions. Um, like if you look at like the classic Iron Robin idea where everybody said Iron Robin always did the same thing. He went down, he cut in on his left and he scored. People were like, how have defenders not figured this out? Because he doesn't always have to do that and there's multiple things he could have potentially done and he's quite good at the disguising his movements before that. Yeah, because I think the example that came to me in my head was there's some players that would nearly be like telecast you'd see them in position like david beckham when he's taking a free kick when he's like more than 45 degrees at an angle you're like right well he can't i'll be able to tell where this is going because he can't manipulate his body or he'll genuinely fall over so it's yeah, that kind of obviously they, it's from they, further out and you still can't stop it yeah there definitely is um to my knowledge like i don't have exact knowledge of like an exact an exact example for you but i would definitely suggest that you're you're definitely on the right path that to a point in time when they've made contact with the ball at some point, you're gonna know. So, I hope you have Shakira referenced in your PhD because uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I like I like to use the the Shakira one. It normally just gets a laugh, which is all I'm looking for <laughs> half the time. <laughs> just to tie it back a little bit to, to some of the earlier bits of skill acquisition, um, and some of the kind of theories around it and how it's built up. I know for say in school at Leaving Cert level, we teach. Fitz and Postner's model of the cognitive stage, associative stage, and autonomous stage. And just give a brief brief explanation or example. I generally do that through juggling. And no one else, generally the students in the class, haven't juggled before. So when they start off, you can see them trying to figure it out in their head, which would purport to be the cognitive stage. 
if I try and distract them in any way through asking questions, as they're just starting to put together, it throws them completely off. I'm guessing that's because it's taken up the majority of attention. When they turn attention to something else, it takes them away from that sort of nail to focus on it. From doing this over a few years, I've gotten reasonably handy at juggling. So I can juggle away and chat to someone beside me. So I'm gone on towards associative autonomous stage because it's not taken up the same amount of attention in my head. I feel somehow that's possibly maybe an outdated model or a bit of an older model may have evolved a little bit since. Can you give us kind of where research is currently at and what kind of theory around it that you generally follow? Yeah, I mean, like I, I do. There, there are some aspects of the the Fitz and Posner model that are are really good, and the, you gave a, a really good example of dual tasking there. Um, if my if and it's something I use in in rehab from an SNC perspective, uh, is I'll get players to dual task, and if their movement breaks down, you know that they're focusing too much of their attention on the body or whatever. But to move on from that, the there there are other models. So the the Fitz and Posner model is very much uh, an information processing model, which kind of is is more aligned to a linear progression of development. Um, it's kind of uh, tick off step one, tick off step two, tick off step three. Um, and there, there are a, a number of other models. You've got like Gentiles, you've got Bernstein's. Uh, and one that I kind of would lean closer to it comes from a, an ecological dynamics perspective. And it's a Newell's three-stage model. So, so there, a lot of these are three-stage models. Um, but he, instead of going cognitive, associative, and autonomous, he goes coordination, control, and then skill optimization. So coordination is kind of establishing coordination functions. So in juggling, there are coordinations of the hands that you kind of need to get to, to be able to juggle. Um, or in, in hurling there are coordination patterns to a ground strike that typically there's a bandwidth of things that work in that motion. So you create a coordination pattern between your limbs. In the kind of early stages with novices, a lot of the times they'll do something that that we call freezing degrees of freedoms. So degrees of freedom are like the, if you were to look at your shoulder, in a really basic sense, your shoulder has three degrees of freedom. It can move forward, move sideways, you can move backwards. But then when you layer that with additional degrees of freedom, you have the musculature, that impact on it. And obviously, your shoulder can move in a lot more places than just the traditional three that we would view it as. Um, but when you look at a novice who's learning a new skill, they typically start to freeze those up. So I would suggest that if you were to look at some of your... Um, uh, people's when they're juggling at the start the movement is a little bit more rigid or frozen as they're trying to coordinate themselves and then the kind of step two of that model is control so once they have like a, a basic coordination of, of of juggling kind of established they almost kind of start to gain control rather than almost just about having the coordination they're now in a more controlled sense of juggling and they start to free up those degrees of freedom. So if a ball goes a little bit wider than they thought it, it would have been for where they would have typically been juggled, they can adjust to that. And they've got a little bit more control and they're able to free up the kind of degrees of freedom around their arms, their wrists, their elbows. Um, and it's in that kind of stage, it's about kind of creating an adaptive but a stable behavior. So I would talk about like, stability and coordination and then 
stable adaptability. So stability in coordination is something that this is what I'm doing. It's very up and down. Or if I'm uh, tapping my fingers off a desk, there's stability in that coordination. But when I'm talking about a stable pattern that's adaptive, it's a little bit more towards that ability to be able to adapt to the unpredictable nature of the ball sometimes. It's still controlled, but I'm adaptable and I'm stable in my ability to adapt, if that makes sense. So to tie back to maybe a sporting example, if we go back to hurling, if I stand ball in my left hand, hurl in my right hand, I throw up the ball and I hit it. That's a stable movement. But if someone is coming from behind me to hook me or someone's coming from front to block me, I need to sidestep slightly, but still be able to hit it. So it's still stable, but it's adaptive to wherever the constraint is coming from. And I need to solve that problem in a slightly yeah. different way, but it's still the same. I assume core skill is possibly a little misrepresentation. Yeah, I, I mean, you can use you can use striking in in hurling if or camogie, and you look at uh, when kids are learning to strike first, or even adults who are learning to play hurling or camogie. Um, they they will kind of freeze the upper body, and it's it's kind of a a more exaggerated swing concept with their upper body rather than through their arms. So that would be the kind of coordination phase where they may be connecting with the ball and that's fine um but then in the control phase they're doing what as you would say they're starting to adapt to what's potentially happening with other people around them and they're having to adapt to that little bit more of a like unpredictable nature of the skill having to be completed and then when you kind of go to the third stage it kind of progresses quite heavily but it's kind of skill optimization where they're able to exploit that movement a lot better so they may be able to start to put spin on the slitter or they may be able to strike slitter into the floor or they may be able to reduce the even energy expenditure because that's kind of one of the key elements of that is if you take a ton of energy in each swing and like anybody who starts playing hurling for the first time as an adult they'll realize very quickly they may, they'll be very sore from a, a lot of repetition of that but as you get to that kind of skilled optimization perspective you get a lot more energy efficient in your movement as well so it's about developing on those phases of kind of freezing, freeing, and then exploiting the degrees of freedom or, or essentially how you move, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the, the Newell's model. And then there's been a little bit of a, a development on that. Uh, and this was done in a book, The Dynamics of Skill Acquisition. So they kind of look, they kind of break it down into skill development, perceptual, so kind of skill characteristics, perceptual characteristics, and then behavioral characteristics. And then their stages within that are search and exploit, or sorry, search and exploration. They have discovery and stabilization, and then they have exploitation. The three stages are quite similar to Newell's, but it's about encouraging more of the perceptual element in the learning of a skill. Because when you look at the representative environment, or for example, the game, introducing that earlier is going to have a better impact on the rate of progression and transfer of those skills. So, so the idea being that players, athletes, whatever it is, become better at solving smaller challenges from an earlier stage and therefore become a little bit more adaptable as they go through their, their playing career. Yeah. Just on, does the impact, of, does age have any impact on that? Like, can a five-year-old, if put into like certain situations you have to solve, are they a little bit more adaptable to that than a 25-year-old or is it literally just how long you've been at the skill? Yeah, well, what's what's really interesting is the constraints-led approach was developed for infants. Like, when it was initially developed, like, one of the earlier um, 
iterations from Newell, it wasn't for sport. It was for it was developed for infants and how they develop motor skills. Um, and I think to to address your, your question a little bit more directly, children by nature are far more explorative in how they learn. I mean, th- this is kind of one of the the things I think coaches need to get closer to is like kids will learn by exploring and they'll what we're going to call self-organize into particular skills so they'll they'll figure it out in the context that they're put in so put them in an environment and they'll figure it out pretty well even like you hold a a newborn they're going to be scratching at your head they're going to be pulling at your hair because they're trying to figure out what is around them at a constant rate if we were to kind of apply that to a, a kind of an elite game the more exploration you can encourage your players to do, the more they can figure out about the game, the better they're going to be able to be in a robustness of those skills. But I think one of the issues in, in the age aspect is that kind of preconceived ideas of what a skill may be hampers adults when they're trying to learn a skill because they have this idea of, well, this is what it is, this is what I have to do, whereas kids by nature may be... Now, that, that's, that's a generalisation. I'm not saying that that's fact but that from experience that's kind of what i've seen sometimes can they have i suppose and, and this actually brings up the next point a little bit around technical models and that if they have a suboptimal movement pattern more ingrained and then they look to change are you essentially regressing back through the steps or is it is it just an adjustment at that level or yeah i would say no i get what you, i get what you mean i think it's more of an adaption i mean i think the biggest issue is people fear regression in a skill whereas this idea of practice having to be perfect is also one that is mind numbing for me i can't i can't comprehend it the more mistakes some athletes make the better they're going to learn um and quite often you see training sessions that are focused on something looking good or is that i don't want it to look good i want it to look a little bit chaotic i want it to be messy i want them to be figuring it out i want to make it difficult i want to make them think um, so like that's more that's so much more closer to that non-linear approach it's it's learning learning just doesn't go on that straight line trajectory it goes up and down but I don't think people are very accepting of that and that's where some of the difficulty kind of comes in in training sessions they think it should be linear and they think it should look better every time they that somebody works on it but it, it naturally it's just not going to be it's, it's very non-linear you're going to regress in parts like elite athletes will regress in phases and then come back up as they as it kind of destabilize as a movement destabilizes and then they kind of calibrate back to a better movement pattern based on their exploration that's kind of golf has gone that way a good bit in terms of like the golf swing itself whereas like there's so many more non-textbook swings kind of out there now and people have like realistically now it just comes to how you strike the ball at impact how you get from the top of your backswing to impact is completely irrelevant really and now there's so many people like like your bryson's like your matt wolf who have completely un on um textbook swings but are like some of the most powerful and potentially accurate on tour yeah absolutely but i think you know you know what i think is fascinating i, th- I thought jim fiorick would have introduced the concept of it that a lot earlier but it's still there's still quite a lot of like culturally resilient beliefs like there's a machine that is your perfect swing characteristics but it, what you're kind of talking about is the the concept of degeneracy which is a fancy way of saying there's multiple ways to achieve the same goal and you're right there there is massive ver- variability in how players swing like that's one of the key things that coaches should really be taking on board is that 
if you're trying to get everybody to look like one thing you're going the completely wrong way about it it's about embracing that inherent in individual variability because like even you look at um i think it's dustin johnson has hyperflexion in his wrists so he's able to get to a different uh position at the top of his backswing and people have tried to mirror that but they don't have <laughs> hypermobility in their wrists so you're they're, they're almost chasing this thing that is almost impossible for them to get to which is is just yeah but again it's just creating more awareness about those things and i think it is getting much better so one of the things i want to dig into then is like i tutor on a lot of ga courses and the and most of it is with foundation level courses core coaches sorry so we're trying to just give them the basics of a skill or how to coach or teach or, or as you mentioned earlier how to instruct a skill we generally go through idea we introduce it demonstrate and explain it and, and explanation is generally through what the head does what the hands do and what the feet do is that still the most appropriate method are we better off giving a really brief demo just letting them at it and then through simple constraints looking to develop it from there and maybe having um a few exemplars of constraints we could use based on a potential um inefficiency lack of competency whatever it might be or do we still give that explanation is it a worthwhile way forward i think your your latter example there of well not latter kind of in the middle where you said to just demonstrate and then let them go for people who are in office i think that's a way better approach um one because like when we go through like instruction and i give you seven things to think about in a scale it's sensory overload you're just gonna your system's gonna jam up because you have too many things to think about you can't do that I mean, like we could talk all day about external focus of attention research, um, which is just about taking somebody's attention away from the body and how huge an impact that has on them. But to to kind of come back to your question, I I think we're better off allowing people to explore within a bandwidth. I mean, like there's obviously things that are going to be more effective. So it's not about just letting it. So go self organize and that's it, because that's not what we're talking about either. It's go see if you can figure out an efficient way to achieve the outcome. And if you're achieving it really reliably and consistently in performance, I don't have any problem with that. If you've self-organized and something that just doesn't work, then that's when we start to guide discovery in terms of, well, let's let's just ask, let's pull, let's perturb the system, let, let's ask the athlete questions on, well, you're, it looks like you're doing this what do you think what impact do you think that's having on on your swing or what impact do you think that's having on your strike and seeing what they start to think about that and then say okay well i tell you what, why don't you why don't you look at five different ways of of this strike uh when you do it next and then you're just encouraging exploration in that aspect where they might not have done it before but it's more of a guided discovery than a show and tell and what is the value of technical models around some skills? Did you have this technical model and it should look like this? How much freedom should there ideally be either side of what that technical mod- model is? And sometimes can you go too far away from it um, and it's just not an efficient movement anymore? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely depends. I mean, uh, I know we were chatting before about Dick Frasby and the Frasby flop. Like that was a that was a technique that had never been seen in the high jump before and until he did it nobody else had done it before there's I, I think Duarte Rujo has some brilliant research on a recent I think it's triple jumper maybe um with a really similar no sorry it's uh it's double poles uh where there's a something Martinez is, is the girl is the woman's name and 
this move in the double poles in gymnastics is named after her because she created this particular move. If we are to apply technical models really heavily to everything we do, I think we're dampening that creativity. There is, and this is where it depends, you have situations where people self-organizing into these things may actually hurt them. Like there's, there's like you look at Rafa Nadal's forehand, which gave him so much hassle because of rotator cuff injuries because he whipped up back and around his head. So in that aspect where if it's causing you injury, you need to maybe destabilize and go back towards what may be viewed as a more technical model, but there's still a massive bandwidth in that technical model. It, it's For me, it's about, yeah, we're going to kind of draw really, really vague, blurry lines out here, and I want you to try and push the boundary of those as much as you can, but if, based on the efficiency or the effectiveness of the outcome. Because I'd see coaching, like, there are a few things I'm a bit non-negotiable about, like when it comes particularly to some skills at an early age, like I will really push that the dominant hand be on top of the hurl. I, I, I just find too many issues if you put your non-dominant hand on top, it just leads to a little bit more inefficiencies, particularly when you strike off your other side. I also find that when players move, say a right-handed hurler looks to strike off the left, I find the inefficiency there is they don't step across with their right foot so, so they stay facing the target as opposed to turning sideways and little things like that I'm I'm very strict and I, I will always look to correct that it can be through instruction it can be through a little constraint or, or making up some little thing that, that focuses on improving the exercise or the skill but generally in the little technical model I have in my head I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not okay on like I'm not up for a debate on this bit but other parts then that kind of expand out from the skill yeah I'm fairly okay with, with bits like that then as well yeah, no, I mean, like, there, there, there's definitely a part of me that would allow those things to develop to see what occurs. Um, and I probably wouldn't jump in as fast as you probably would, uh, based on <laughs> based on what we're saying here. <laughs> but again, that, that that comes back then to the nuance of coaching, you know. The, well, the last things you want to touch on there, I know it's something that's uh, fairly passionate to yourself, is looking at agility. So, like, we, we talked last week about the, the combine, and they have their... I'm going to put my fingers up here now, but their agility test, you have your pro-agility drill, the Illinois agility test, your, your 5105, which measures agility. Realistically, can agility actually be measured or tested? Well, it depends on how you frame it. So what I think they're testing is change of direction. Yeah, I think the exact same. I don't, for me, they are not testing agility. So change of direction is like technique, your anthropometrics, your linear speed, your deceleration, uh, your reactive strength, your concentric power and strength and kind of the imbalances in your body. Those you can test pretty well in terms of change of direction. So you can look at how those things feed into change of direction. But to have agility, you then need change of direction and you need perceptual and decision making, which comes back to your visual scan scanning, your situational probability, uh, your pattern recognition, your gaze behavior, and your anticipation performance. So for me, if you want to talk about agility, you're talking about those two um, combined, not in silos. And give us a few examples there of like why agility ties in so much decision-making as opposed to just run to that line, stop, and come back the other way as fast as you can. Because we move in invasion sports, we move based on our opponents. We don't. We don't. We. It's very rare you predetermine. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to run this channel, and I'm going to run this line, and that's exactly how it's going to go. It, it like 
the the environment dictates so much of what we do and it's kind of this concept of afford and space control where if I have somebody running towards me how they're moving towards me feeds into my decision making if they're coming at me at a lot of speed the reality is I might actually be able to sidestep them much better because they're coming so quickly it's going to be a lot harder for them to decelerate and change direction or decelerate and make an agile movement to intercept me whereas if somebody is coming at me a little bit slower an earlier deceptive step or an earlier move in the other direction isn't really going to fool them because they they don't have to decelerate that excessively to get towards me and why like why that has an impact is so much more than just like the one-to-one dyad situation it's very much on the where is your te- where are your other teammates where are your opponents i mean in in rugby if you're on the very if you're able by touch you're not you're restricted you can't go out into touch you have to come back into the left so the situation in front of you dictates massively what's actually going to happen in terms of your movement and when we remove that from training or from identifying agility we're not getting an accurate picture of what actually happens and just a, a kind of another example here say say a train this evening Damien there is marking um, James Dunhu car back and car forward and if we put the two of them into a 10 metre speed test or acceleration test Damien wins and if we put them both into a 5-10-5 Damien wins but when we go out in the game then James is getting the ball because he's perceiving what's happening out the field that's the, okay I know this player will, will generally 9 times out of 10 put the ball in this position whereas Damien doesn't perceive that as quickly so while Damien physically has the potential to move faster than James James is getting to the ball first because he's perceiving where it's going to be earlier and that's what's looking at the next level of change direction is tying in that decision making and that perception around it as opposed to just straight up physical characteristics underneath yeah so if you have really really good perceptual abilities there's a a concept that uh, Kevin Murray turned me on to uh, from GB hockey and it's get there fast but arrive slowly so if I'm able to read the game better I can get to where I know I need to be a lot faster, but I don't have to be at a full out sprint to get there. And there's there's some like and it's it's anecdotal, but you have these really nice quotes from Paolo Maldini being like, "Oh well, if I've got to make a tackle, I've already made a mistake." So it's about the the perceptual awareness of being able to put yourself in a better position based on your better understanding of the game, so you don't have to rely on your physical capabilities to get you there. Now, the better thing is if you have fantastic physical capabilities and fantastic perceptual abilities, that's, that you're going to be really effective. But if you're relying purely on physical capabilities, you could be in an awful lot of trouble. Like, I know you don't really see it as much anymore, but Matt Letizia rarely moved in the game of soccer. Like, now, you probably don't get that to the same extent because the game has gotten a lot faster and it's gotten a lot more physical. But perceptual players or p- p- players who are really perceptually skilled don't have to rely as much on their physical capabilities but it there's this other element that ties into that is that your physical abilities can have a significant impact on your decision making so you look at or and even your skill so you look at uh, the example of like Messi, Xavi and say Neymar Suarez if Xavi sees a gap the likelihood is he was always passing through that gap to a, a teammate if Messi saw the same gap, the likelihood he was probably going to try and dribble and say Suarez or some somebody else in that 
line may shoot and that's purely based on their skill capabilities and that the exact same gap affords them something affords all of them something different so the player's individual skill and capabilities impacts on them in terms of what they're going to do and in terms of their decision making when they're presented with very similar situations I remember being on a workshop with Michael Clegg, who was with United for 10 years, and he said, no matter what physical kind of test they did, you generally had a few different players who would have, you know, one better speed, one better strength. But generally, the worst player at every single thing they did was Paul Scholes. But it, it didn't have the same impact on his game because his, like, his perception of what's happening and of reading what's happening and everything just allowed him to focus on stuff or develop strengths other than his physical ones that, that just more or less made up for him and allowed him yeah. to still be an absolutely top-class soccer player for years. Yeah, like there's fantastic research in scanning um, in, in football and it's, the, the, it's what kind of what I was referring to earlier. But if you can scan more appropriately and you're able to pick up more information and you can identify better patterns in play, then you can position yourself in a much better position where you simply don't have to rely on your physical capabilities. Do you want to hop in on that in there, lads? No, no, no. I was just thinking there a little bit about um, uh, Kante there in the uh, uh, Champions League uh, final there. Just his, um, his, he was actually heavily involved from way back the field in turning the ball over that led to that's the goal um and it, it was a wider angle shot kind of showed it and it was purely down to he he kind of he read what was going to happen up the field right he used his physical capabilities to get up there but he read where there was a potential chink in the armor coming out and uh it turned the ball over led to uh, led to the goal it's just something that you know a lot of people didn't even think he was part of the the lead up to it but you know that this wider out shot just showed that 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 scanning of what was about to happen uh set him off and it's just it's it it's it's something that you would kind of hear from a lot of maybe top end uh players in any sport really uh, basketball especially basketball is massive for perception you know just uh just scanning the court no look passes uh you know all this kind of stuff where you're like wow that that's amazing but that player knows exactly where they're putting where, like what they're up to where they're going it's it's not chance i guess it's it's but it's I, i'd imagine it's that that just inbuilt um i suppose uh level of, of skill development scanning like you said and the whole lot kind of coming together as well as their physical capabilities um but yeah it's 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 something that i suppose you don't necessarily uh see maybe being worked on maybe i'm looking at it from a gaelic football perspective a little bit more so than anything there but you don't see it being um worked on as uh, as much or maybe promoted as as much yeah no i would agree and like the 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 research and scanning there's a new paper released i think it was just two or three days ago uh and again it most of this research is in soccer but they're seeing that uh under 17s to 19s have similar scanning like those players who scan better at those age groups also are benefiting from the same things that the elites are so um typically you pass the ball forward faster if you're better at scanning and you're better at identifying what's going on you typically have a higher pass completion rate than uh others who don't scan as well and there's a couple of other factors that tie in i think it like it's it's something that most sports as you say should be looking at especially like you look at basketball there's a huge element of that as well but any sport where it's an invasion sport and you have players who are having to deal with a 360 degree environment and game environment 
it's it's a it's kind of a no-brainer was in the last dance the episode where they focused on Rodman where he said like oh if I know such and such shoots from there and it's going slightly to right I know it'll rebound here and if such and such shoots and if it hits the rim here well I know it's going to go there is that a classic case of him in his head using Bayes theorem to update the priors as to every time he shoots and it goes this way it's you know the percentage chance of it are most likely going here and that's how he's using that yeah it's contextual priors is kind of the the academic term around it where you have an idea of with like a really good performance analysis that ties in really well with this is if you can get a good understanding of what teammates or opponents are doing you can start to get a better understanding of from a contextual or situational situation this is probably what's going to happen you can then also kind of and to tie it back into constraints you can manipulate or constrain your training sessions in terms of time so with 30 seconds left you're down by six points now because that's going to have a significant impact on what actually happens from a decision-making process. If you are down with very little time to go, your decision-making changes. Like in rugby, you're not going to start passing out wide when the clock's gone red, because if the ball goes out, that's it, game over. You're going to keep the ball in a little bit more than you typically would have, because you're not willing to take the chance of losing based on the ball going into touch. In hurling or Gaelic football you may transition up the pitch much quicker than you typically would have if you don't have a lot of time left in that particular game so you can start to manipulate time constraints you can start to manipulate score constraints to impact and see how those things influence your team um but yeah yeah, I see sometimes doing a, you know, like a hand passing drill or something like that and the coach shouts out, for every ball dropped, we're going to do a press up. And suddenly you can see the pace of train just massively drop because everyone, instead of looking to do good hand passes, they suddenly fear the drop ball. As opposed to for every good hand pass we make here, you're getting a wine gum after train, which would encourage people to up the pace and do things right as opposed to fear the negative. Yeah, and I think that's and and if you'll indulge me for another minute or two, I think that's a that's a really important thing you touched on, and it's if there's three things that you want to maintain in all your sessions for for really good practice transfer to a game is context of the game, the situation, the relevance in terms of your kind of timing, your scoring, and then your consequences. So you can apply consequences, and it's probably really important that I stress this is that consequences and punishments. I I really kind of dislike the idea of punishments exactly uh, in in training. It's just it it sends the the wrong message to your players whereas you can identify consequences that are way more fun so we were in Norway and Estonia last year well two years ago now but you know it's hard to tell time wise um, and, and our players were struggling from a free throw perspective so we were saying okay well look we're going to work on free throws uh, you guys tell us what percentage do you think you should be hitting from the free throw line so you know they took a minute or two with, oh well we think we should be hitting this percentage so okay uh, at the end of training today you're all going to take free throws and we're going to put you under pressure and we're going to create a lot of noise and I had a speaker that had crowd noise speaker that was going random sirens and we we're trying to put them off as much as we possibly could uh, but the consequence we applied which all the players agreed to is that if they didn't make that percentage I took all their phones until after dinner that evening so they were like because there was there was a couple of conversations about look relying on your phones we want you to integrate talk to each other don't look down at your phone so they were like all right well look that's a consequence that's gonna add value to every free throw because they were like all right well i don't want to be without my phone for a while so i'm gonna put a little bit more emphasis on this free throw and the the big thing is one they didn't make it so we did we took their phones took them away um but consequences don't have to be that like 
serious either. That bizarre, like I have one player who absolutely despises choosing the music for a session, so that's that player's consequence. Anytime I I go there, because it, it it just it emotes that <gasps> sensation. So that's what you kind of want to do. You want to kind of create a consequence that gets them feeling like they're about to stand up in a class and do a presentation, but not a punishment. You also don't want uh, uh, I suppose um something in the form of a punishment to kind of take from the session either like you exactly. know dropped out it's very rare if there's a, a hand pat or that i've come across anyway for a ball hitting the ground that it's one push-up it's usually five <laughs> per per ball and like you know if lads are tired or you know or if there's a some kind of a tackle in there or anything at all or if it's a very tight group you can end up with lads having to do 20 25 push-ups in in the thing like that that can take from the rest of the session too so you know there there is that negative side effect from a physical perspective as well as the psychological kind of and it it dampens creativity nobody wants to explore a hand pass and be creative with a hand pass if everybody on the team is getting multiple press-ups at the end of the game for them trying to be creative so you're just dampening that exploration you're dampening that creativity and you're not really encouraging for the skill development I still think it's nice as well to try and reward positives as opposed to punish negatives and even then I'm conscious of not doing too much particularly not in some kind of external reward because you still want the athletes to be very much internally motivated and the, the true success is having a new skill you can then use in the game or having a higher quality skill you can use in the game as opposed to here's like tonight now because this won't be released for a week like the, the reward will be you know, covering someone else in a water balloon because we're doing little like agility stuff and reaction stuff so your reward is obviously there's a bit of a punishment for the person who gets a water balloon in their back but their real reward is the person who nails them with it yeah absolutely yeah and they love taking stuff out in the coaches as well so if you can include yourself in the consequences they they, they tend to really amplify their want to succeed so. <laughs> I'm really glad it'll be over when this goes out Matt <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nelson Shane you want to hop in on that no, that's good. It was really interesting. I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that Damien beat someone for pace in your analogy. That's been distracting me this entire time. Uh, I, I, my entire game relies on reading the game. It's yeah, that's what certainly I'm not thinking. my physical attributes. So yeah, I should have flipped that example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm delighted with this episode because I can go, I can go back home now and be like, look, lads, I don't actually need to be as fit as you want me to be. <laughs> Remember, I did say maximize both, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been brilliant with your time there. So, just briefly wrap up there your current role there at TUD and where people can find you or anything like that. Yeah, so I'm lecturing in uh, Technological University Dublin um, on sport and leisure management, which is great. Um, hopefully, getting into September, we'll be back on campus. Uh, if you want to reach me, Twitter is probably the easiest place. I don't have the other social medias, it's just uh, at Alan Dunton. Um, or alan.dunton at tudublin.e also if you want to drop me an email feel free happy to uh, to chat through anything people have in terms of questions from what I was talking about no it's absolutely brilliant I think this is definitely one we need to follow up on because I still have a few questions here I want to try and try and go after you with so no absolutely brilliant thanks a million for that and thank you awesome. very much thanks lads cheers